Well, uh, good evening. Uh, for those of you that are maybe regular attenders, you're looking up and you think, who is this strange fellow who seems to have made his way onto stage while Jamie was praying? So sneakily, right? My name is Jacob Smith, and I am actually the youth director over at Southwood. Uh, so if you feel like going back to high school, come talk to me. Or if you want to be a high school leader, I guess that would make more sense chronologically and with physics, the way they work. But uh, you can let me know, uh, because I've been over at Southwood for the past year and a half, uh, and it's a really exciting time. You'll find out all about youth culture and exciting things like One Direction, the boy band from Britain, who's awesome, that no one knows. That's okay. Just me. That's all right. It's normal for me to know about boy bands, right? Yeah. Okay, so this morning, or this evening, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we're going to be looking uh, at pretty much the classic story, the classic historical example of evangelism. Uh, we're going to be looking at basically where everyone turns in the Bible when they're talking about evangelism and sharing the gospel and sharing your faith with the people around you. Nine times out of ten, that person will turn to Acts chapter 8. And they're going to look at the life of a guy named Philip. Now, last week, you guys talked about Stephen, right? He was one of the first deacons ever, right? Stephen was appointed within the church at Jerusalem to oversee uh, some kind of managerial things. Like they, were, they needed some widows and orphans to be taken care of. And so they said, hey, Stephen and six other guys, we're going to give you guys that responsibility. Philip was one of those guys. And when they were raised up in Jerusalem, they were doing so well and they were presenting Christianity so well that it was catching fire and all these people were buying into it and they're joining the church. And, and the Jews at the time hated it to the point where they looked at these, this group of Christians, right? And they saw them as a cult. They saw them as a sect with an offshoot of normal Jewish tradition, right? And so when they saw this, they hated it. They took Stephen, because he was one of the main leaders, and brought him before a council, said, look, he's been saying all these hypocrisies and all these terrible things. And so they stoned him to death. So you guys talked about last week, and you saw how Stephen was such an impact. He had such this presence because he was able to take the seemingly distant points of grace and power, but join them together in both his life and in his message. So whenever the leaders, the religious leaders saw him, they, they hated him because he was so effective. Philip is in that same camp. Philip is on the same level as Stephen. He wasn't just an afterthought, right? He was one of this, these seven guys that are really legit. And what we're going to see is Philip go out and basically evangelize, share the gospel with a very different type of person. And we see him in this amazing, almost miraculous scenario, spread the word of Jesus Christ. But what's key, what I want us to realize is that as we're reading it, is that keep in mind, keep the perspective that when you are watching Philip in this situation, that realize it's not Philip who made it happen. Okay, we'll, we'll unpack that as we walk through it. Starting in verse 26, chapter 8, says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. 
He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a shepherd, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? So then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the life of Philip. God, we thank you that you inspired the hand of Luke to record this book of Acts, to record this historical document, to take these little snapshots of the early church, showing us how they lived and what they did and what was accomplished through their faith. God, we thank you that you have recorded these things and have given them to us to read, to study, to be encouraged by, and to be motivated by. God, we thank you that you have set this bar in front of us so high. Lord, we pray that we would not be intimidated by it, but that instead, Lord, we would be encouraged and motivated to study and prepare and train ourselves to where we can accomplish these same things, that God, where we can put ourselves in the same positions as these great patriarchs of the faith, like Stephen and Philip. So Lord, we pray that tonight as we look through Philip's life, through his actions, that God, we would engage with the truth, that Lord, your spirit would move in our hearts. Lord, we pray that this evening would be entirely about you and nothing else. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, I have a wife. Her name is Susan. She's great, by the way. And we've been married for about two and a half years now. And over the course of that time, uh, we have discovered something fun, I suppose, about marriage. uh, In that, as a married couple, uh, you are constantly being presented with the exact same question over and over and over again. One question arises. Pretty much every single person you ever talk to will ask you this, and that is, hey, so when are you going to have kids, right? Like, that's, that's it. Like, your mom or your dad or, like, checkout lady at Walmart, like, when are you kid, huh? kids, right? Like, all of them. And to the point uh, where I have youth kids asking me this constantly, because, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And so they watch their parents ask me this question, so they say, hey, hey, yeah, Jacob, when are you going to have kids, right? And I always tell them, 
Tuesday. They're like, what? Right? Like, it just blows her mind, right? Because I have to have some sort of response, right? Because when they're engaging me in that way, when they're asking me this question over and over and over again, I've got to give them something, right? So I'm like, oh, yeah, it's, Susan's been, she's just slim, right? Like, it's, it's amazing, right? She's a modern miracle, right? And we give them this answer just kind of like, ah, like, go away, right? Because you get the same question. And what's interesting, though, is we thought that, that, question, that there would be no more questions, uh, which was foolish of us, because looking back, we realized that we've encountered a question with pretty much every phase of our relationship, right? When we were engaged, which comes before marriage normally, right? When we were engaged, the question that both of us received constantly, myself especially, I think, because I'm more bothered by it than her. I'm probably, she's probably just nicer than me. That's probably what it is. But same question over and over and over again. Are you excited? Are you excited? Right? Like just all the time to the point where no joke on my wedding day, the stinking photographer actually pulled me aside and said, Hey, see you excited. Are you excited about getting married? Right? And at that point you say, no, no, I'm not. You broke me, right? Like not because of you. I'm no longer excited about my wife. Right? Because you get to that point, right? Because they just ask you the same question over and over and over. And when we were dating, right? It's the exact same deal. Whenever we were dating and we'd start dating, we started meeting friends and those other people, they would always ask us, oh, so how'd you guys meet? Right? Whenever they see you, they're like, oh, there's got to be some great origin story here, right? Like, oh, what brought this together? What made this happen, right? They just want to know. Tell me, right? And so we would always have issues with that, though, because Susan and I, had a really strange meeting process. Uh, we actually met four times. Uh, we met at fish camp, right? The birthplace of all true love. And we met at a uh, Howdy Week barbecue on campus. Right? We met at a concert on Northgate. And then we met on a boat uh, on Lake Bryan. Okay, most of those within about a week span. And you're thinking, well, that doesn't make sense because you only meet someone once. Ah, but do you? Because Susan and I, we met each other over and over and over, over again because every single time one of us forgot the other person. Because every single time one of us would walk up and be like, oh, you know, and so concert, for example, I said, hey, and I wasn't really sure of her name, so I just kind of said it downward. No joke. She was standing here. And I was like, hey, Susan, right? And so in case I got it wrong, then it wouldn't look weird at all, right? So Susan, and then she kind of looked up and was like, oh, and she's like, oh, hey, buddy, right? Because she had no idea who I was, right? Because we had this just disconnect, which was just not clicking until we got into this boat right, where we were forced into the same, like, 10 by 10 area to where we had to have a conversation. We got to know each other and started talking. And that eventually led us to the most romantic possible Aggie experience, which is standing on the third deck of the first football game of the season, right? Nothing better than all around you, right? For three hours. Wildcat, or I don't even know what it's called, but they, we were there. Okay. And we experienced that, right? And eventually all of those things kind of added together and we were like, oh, hey, like, you're pretty, you're pretty cool. Okay, yeah, we should talk and you know, hang out. And from that point on, we started you know, actually building a relationship. But it took four 
meetings. And when we look back at that, it's actually really beautiful. It's something that we really cherish in life because we look at that and we think, wow, like that's, it's so cool because that almost sort of set the stage for the rest of our relationship. Uh, not, not in the sense that we occasionally forget who the other person is, right? Like wake up and, ah, oh, 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 who are you, right? But, but in the sense that when we are, have moved on, especially since we've been married, we've seen time and time again where our lives have just kind of come, we've just come upon these amazing plans, these amazing opportunities straight from God. Just these gifts that he's just like, here you go. And even though when he holds it out, a lot of times we're like, oh yeah, that's, you know, what? And he has to be like, no, look, 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 Jacob, Jacob, look, 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 look at her, look. And I'm like, <laughs> right, right, right. look, look, right, four times. Jacob, look, until eventually I was like, oh, 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 okay, I see what you're doing there, right? Like, it took all this time until I realized, wow, God is doing something amazing with this woman, with this relationship. And when, since we've been married, we've seen time and time again that our lives have merely been a response to what God's doing. The cool opportunities that have popped up, the jobs, the occupations, the, the schooling, the relationships that we've formed with people, really, when we think about it, they've all been responses to what God has just graciously put into our lives. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of us, if we really looked back and thought about the school that we went to or the job that we got or the relationship that we have, we see how, yeah, God has been in control of all of that. How there are pieces to those puzzles that were in no way connected to your decision, right, or something that you did, somehow God has been orchestrating all these little pieces and bringing them together. And all we have to do to participate in that is to respond and say, okay. When we look at Philip and the Ethiopian, what we just read, I want us to realize that when we read this story, it's not this big like, oh, cool, look at Philip, look what Philip did. Instead, it's, wow, look what God just did. And he just happened to let Philip participate. Right? The only reason Philip went through all that stuff was because he was a man who was just willing to say yes to God. It's not a story about one man going out and evangelizing by calling all these people to God. It's one man who's willing to listen for God's call and then respond accordingly. When we look at Philip, I want us to catch that he listened to God, that he was led by God, and that he looked for God's opportunities. This is key. This is key in many areas of our life, especially evangelism, especially when it comes to presenting the gospel of Christ to the world around us. Now, in order to really understand Philip, we also have to get the fact that this is not Philip the apostle. This is not Philip, one of the 12 disciples who's named in the four gospels. Uh, That Philip, I found out through this study, uh, is actually a very boring fellow. Uh, The original Philip did three, he pops up three total times in the four gospels. The first time he ever pops up, it's in Matthew and the disciples are sitting around and there's 5,000 people coming up, right? And so Jesus sees them and we know, or many of us know that this story ends with Jesus gets some bread and some fish and he multiplies it just, and then he, they feed it to everyone. Okay. Feed over 5,000 people. But the, at the very beginning of that story, Jesus and his disciples are chilling on this hill and they see 5,000 men and then however many women and children coming up. 
And Jesus turns to Philip, the apostle, says, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip goes, uh, he doesn't speak. He just, we just like to imagine that Philip was just, uh, well, he doesn't know. And when we see Philip, that, I mean, that's basically his entire, he doesn't even speak. He has one speaking role in the entire New Testament. Philip the Apostle, poor guy. He has one speaking role. And this one line is he walks up to Jesus and says, hey, when, when do we get to see God? Is that going to happen? Right? It was, then Jesus goes in this big, like, don't you see if you know me, you know the Father, right? And he goes into this big thing, and Philip's like, ah, oh, dang it, right? Like, <laughs> I blew it. No, Philip, right? And because that's him. Like, that's, we just did a whole character study on Philip the Apostle right there, right? That's it, right? So this is not the same Philip. This is Philip the Evangelist. That's what he's often referred to uh, by historical writers. They call him Philip the Evangelist because of this story, because of Acts chapter 8, Like I already mentioned, Philip starts out uh, as this man appointed within the church of Jerusalem. But then beyond that, what we see Philip do is we see him do one thing before uh, verse 26. We see him go to Samaria. Now, it's sort of introduced because, like you guys talked about last week, Stephen was stoned to death only because he was a Christian. That was the whole reason, because he was a Christian. So as soon as that happened, all other Christians kind of picked up. This was big on their radars. They're saying, whoa. This can get me killed now. I should probably leave. And so a lot of them did. They got the heck out of Jerusalem. Some of them hunkered down and decided, you know what? We're going to kind of guard home base. We're going to keep this as a, we're going to try to keep some safe areas in Jerusalem for Christians here. It's a very big city. It's capital, right? And so they, they kind of hunkered in, but a lot of people dispersed. And that's why if you look a few verses earlier in chapter eight, verse four, we see the very first thing that Philip does. Verse 4 says this, Now those then who were dispersed went about spreading the good news. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and began to preach Christ to them. The crowds paid attention as one man to what Philip was saying as they listened to him and saw the signs which he performed. For unclean spirits with a loud noise came out of many who were possessed, and many paralyzed and lame people were cured. There was great joy in that city. So we see Philip, one of the very first things he does beyond taking care of these widows and orphans within the church of Jerusalem is he goes to a city in Samaria. And this is a huge deal. This is ginormous, okay? Because the Samaritans and the Jews did not have a good relationship. If you were a Jew, you hated Samaritans. If you were a Samaritan, you hated Jews. That's just how it went. You had bad blood. There was all the stuff in the past. In the history, the Samaritans didn't help rebuild the temple, and the temple was a really big deal to Jews. And they were like, what in the world? And so the Samaritans went and worshipped on this different hill than the Jews did, and there was all this just, they hated each other. But Philip was willing to go there and preach. And this is a huge, huge, huge deal Because I cannot stress enough, no one was above this hating of the Samaritans. Not even Jesus' followers. If you'll remember, the book of Acts is written by the apostle Luke. And what Luke also did is that he wrote the gospel of Luke, okay? And so when you read the gospel of Luke and you read the book of Acts, you'll see a lot of similar themes. You'll see the very similar perspective. See a lot of this sort of similar thing kind of pop up throughout the two books, And part of that is this issue with Samaritans. Luke likes to tackle this issue of what are we going to do about the Samaritans? Because Luke's really all about Gentiles. How are we going to deal with non-Jew people? Okay. And so when we look in Luke for how 
Christ's other followers responded to Samaritans. It's hilarious because we see, okay, we see that Christ tells all of his people, look, you need to go out to these places, right? In Acts 1, he tells them, look, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And his disciples are going to hear this and think, uh-uh, no, no, that sounds terrible, Jesus, right? Because they don't want to go there. Because when we look in Luke, we see in chapter 9, it says that when the days drew near for him, being Jesus, for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, I love, love, love this passage because Jesus' disciples are acting like thugs, right? Like, they've turned into, like, hitmen. Like, hey, hey, Jesus, huh? These guys don't seem to like you much. How about we make them some hurts, rights? You know, like, they're just, it's this insane scenario where they're walking up to Jesus and saying, hey, you want us to, like, burn them up with heaven fire? Come on, Jesus, right? And so Jesus, I love it because it doesn't even tell us Jesus' response because it's not even worth it, right? Instead, it's just, he just turned and rebuked them, like, don't quit, quit praying for fire, stop it, right? Like, that's, that's the whole, and then they go on to another village, right? They're just, you guys are stupid, right? Like, that's, that's the entire scenario. But this was the perfect encapsulation of Jesus' followers' attitude towards Samaritans. Samaritan looks at you the wrong way? Well, pff, you should probably call down heaven fire and burn him up, right? Like, when is that ever the logical next step, right? But that's where they went to. They're like, oh, they didn't. Mm, fire, heaven, right? God must hate them as much as we do, right? That's what they jumped to. And so when we see Philip go to Samaria, when that's the first place he goes, we need to realize that this man is different. That this man, not only is he leading well in Jerusalem, and willing to sacrifice. Not only is he submitted to God inwardly in the sense that he can be in this place and where other people look at him, they recognize he's a leader, right? He can be responsible. Not only that, but we see him when presented with the opportunity to completely submit himself outwardly, to go to a place that's incredibly uncomfortable for him, to go to a city of Samaria. So when we look at Philip, we've got to catch this outward and inward submission to God. This is key. This is key in defining his character. Because I want us to realize that there was more going on in Philip's life than at the beginning of verse 26, right? His story did not begin with an angel appearing to him. God had been preparing him and training him and testing him. And he proved his faithfulness by listening, being led, and looking. And only then does an angel of the Lord appear to him and tell him, look, Philip, I need you to go out to this road in this desert place. So Philip does it. He says, all right. So he goes. And as soon as he gets there, he sees an Ethiopian. An Ethiopian riding in his chariot, right? Reading a passage of the Old Testament, reading out of Isaiah. And so when the Spirit tells Philip, hey, look, I need you to go and join him in his chariot, Philip says, all right. So he goes over. And now this is, 
kind of strange to us, right? When we look at the situation of Philip going to see this man, like it's, it should be a little odd, but realize that if we were back in this time, in this biblical period, it would be even stranger. Because when we see this Ethiopian, what we're missing out on is some of the cultural significance of this man. First of all, this man was a eunuch, okay, which is a thing that happens to boys sometimes where you can't have kids anymore. Okay? If you need further explanation, uh, Jamie Bryant is happy to explain it to you after the service during fan time or whatever. Right? Eunuchs, here's the key, eunuchs were forbidden from entering parts of the Jewish temple. Forbidden by Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy, it says that men with uh, this sort of disfiguration were barred entrance to where men could normally go. They They could enter into an outer area, but they couldn't go as far in as normal men. So the fact that this Ethiopian was willing to go to Jerusalem to worship was odd for that reason. It was also odd because the Ethiopians had their very own religious system. It was very complex and very all, all-encompassing for their country. Because you see, the Ethiopians at this time, the kingdom that ruled there, they worshipped their king. They saw him as a son of God. Literally the son. He was the son of the son. Okay? Big fire thing. Okay? He was the son of the son. And so because of that, they saw him as this figure that couldn't even be touched. He was actually so high up and so godly that he would have no part in the ruling of his nation. Instead, that all fell on the queen mother, the Candace, as we read, or it was actually pronounced the Kandake. That was not a woman. It wasn't a lady named Candace. And it was ruled by Candace. Hey, guys. Right? Like, that's not, that's not how it was. It's Kandake. It's this position this term that they had for the queen mother who actually ruled Ethiopia. And so we see this eunuch who's on his way from Jerusalem. He just finished worshiping there, right? So that's weird. It's also weird because he belongs in Ethiopia, which is odd, right? And he had a position of power there so that he didn't really have much reason to leave or to seek out meaning. In addition to that, he's reading Isaiah, Isaiah, No one just casually picks up Isaiah and says, this looks good. I'm going to browse this, right? Like that's not how we think, especially back then when reading Greek was horrible. Ancient Greek on manuscripts was basically written in all caps, just word after word after word. There were no spaces, all capital letters, no spaces between words. It was like one giant hashtag, okay? Just for the whole manuscript. And so when you saw these scrolls, it was intimidating. And so because of that, you also read aloud. That's why this Ethiopian sounding things out because you had to sound it out because otherwise it just didn't make any sense. So he's sounding out this ancient Greek, writing in, reading in Isaiah, and he's writing us to go back home. And I point this out because we've got to realize that just like Philip, God had already been working in this man's life that there was something going on. God had been moving. Right? That this, this Ethiopian's experience with God did not begin with Philip. We can see and trust that God is at work already in the Ethiopian's life. So when we think about evangelism and going out and meeting people, realize right, that God is at work. God is already moving things around. He's already got these pieces falling into place. So he's got these pieces, right? So he's got Philip, he's got the Ethiopian, and he winds up putting them together. 
Philip goes up and asks him, hey, you understand what you're reading there? And the Ethiopian says, no, I don't get it. He says, I don't understand because there's this prophet, but I can't tell if he's talking about himself or he's talking about someone else. And we, looking back, can now say, well, he was reading this passage in Isaiah 53, a passage that we commonly refer to as the tale of the suffering servant, which we now can easily identify as a prophecy regarding Jesus Christ, because it tells about this servant, this one who would come and suffer and be persecuted for the sake of others. And now we are able to look at that and say, oh, that's Christ. Even more significantly, we realize that this suffering servant and the son of man, the one who was prophesied in Daniel, who would come and come down on clouds and set up this kingdom and rule, we realize, oh, that's both Jesus, right? That was a disconnect that people often had in the gospels. Whenever they're talking to Jesus, he paints himself as this suffering, and he tells his disciples, I'm going to suffer. They never quite got it because they're like, no, 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 but you refer to yourself as the son of man. That means you're great and awesome. They never realized they can both be same person, right? But we, looking back, can see this. We see, oh, yeah, yeah. Isaiah 53, suffering, sorry. He's talking about Christ. And Philip, to his credit, realized the same thing as well, right? We know that because he was able to open his mouth and literally gospel the Ethiopian. Uh, the way ancient Greek works is that basically they would have a noun, like gospel, uh, euangelion, okay? This idea of the good news. And he could, they would take this and be like, well, what if I want to say that I'm telling someone the gospel? How would I phrase that? And someone would say, well, uh, you could say you're gospeling. They said, that sounds great. Let's do that. And they would just turn nouns into verbs just like that. Like, oh, you just got gospeled. Oh, snap, right? Like, that's, that's how it would work. And so right here we see Philip just gospeled the Ethiopian. Oh, right? Starting in Isaiah 53 which is crazy, right? He starts in Isaiah 53. He doesn't tell the Ethiopian, okay, well, yeah, Isaiah's crazy, huh? I don't get it either. Tell you what, uh, my buddy John has not written anything yet, but when he does, he's going to write John 3.16. And let me just recite that to you right now, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't fall back on these other things, right? He doesn't say, well, hey, let's talk about Genesis 3 and the original prophecy of the Messiah. No, instead he picks up in Isaiah 53, and he gospels the Ethiopian to the point where the Ethiopian puts his faith in Christ, right? And we know this, it is evident because he sees some water. He says, hey, can I just get baptized right there? Philip says, all right. And so they do. Baptize the Ethiopian, which in the book of Acts, whenever someone is being baptized, that is just always an outward demonstration of an inward decision, so we can see and be confident right there that the Ethiopian has put his faith in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. That Philip clearly explained that Christ was the one who came and suffered and was persecuted to the point of death. That even though he had lived a perfect life, he was killed anyway for the sins of the world. So that we may put our faith in him for forgiveness and grace, for the mercy that is given to us as a gift. If we just trust and what he did on our behalf. And so the Ethiopian hears that, and it clicks. And right after that, what I love in this ongoing theme of Philip has really done nothing so far, right? You realize that? So far, the spirit told him exactly where to go, told him exactly who to talk to. The guy asked him to tell him the gospel, basically. Then the guy asks him to baptize him, right? Philip has 
has not come up with a single original thought this entire time. To the point where as soon as the Ethiopian gets baptized, it says that the spirit literally teleports Philip away. Just poof, right? You got baptized, man. That's awesome. What? Right? Hand passes through him like a ghost. Whoa, right? And the Ethiopian, what I also love, he doesn't even phase him. So the Ethiopian never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Like, cool, <laughs> whatever, right? And that's, that's it. And that's the last we see of the Ethiopian as well, wherever he went, right? So we see in this passage that Philip has done nothing but respond to God. We see this man who is truly listening and being led and looking for opportunities, right? We see this man who is entirely submitted to what God was doing. And what's crazy about this passage, what, what we love to do is take it and be like, well, look, Philip did it, and so can you. So if you just pray, or if you have enough faith, or if you give to the right missionary organization, then you too can be Philip. You can find yourself on Texas Avenue, knocking on the windows of Ethiopians and saying, do you want to know the gospel? Right? Like that's, that's what you can do too. We use it as this kind of like, go get them kind of talk, but that's not the purpose of this passage. That's not what's going on here. Instead, like we've already said, this passage is not about what Philip did. It's not about what we can do with God behind us. Instead, this passage is about what amazing things God is doing in this world. And if we are simply willing to stop and listen and look, then we can be allowed to participate in those things. God's going to do it. It's going to happen. Right? Luke is very clear in this because he has given us this passage for a very specific reason. Remember Acts 1.8 tells us that Christ told his disciples, look, I want you to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Right? I want you to go out to the ends of the earth. We've already seen Philip go out to Samaria. Right? He started in Jerusalem. He just went to Samaria, which we all see as, wow, But then, not only that, but when we see this story about him and the Ethiopian, what we need to realize culturally is that at that time, people saw Ethiopia as the end of the earth. In Homer's Odyssey, he calls Ethiopians literally the eschatoi androne. Eschatoi androne, meaning the last of men. The very final men, the very final place on this world. They believed that nothing beyond Ethiopia really existed. They just said, that's, that's the edge of the world. So what Luke is pointing out to us is that look at what God has done. In this much time after Jesus' proclamation, after his command, it's done. It's already accomplished. That's how great our God is. That he would move these people, that he would have these systems in place to accomplish his tasks so quickly and so easily that God would be moving in this way. And if we're just willing to listen and be led by him, then we can participate in those things. So when I read this, man, I'm convicted. When I read this and see what Philip has done and when I, when I see what, how God used him, I think, how can I make God use me? How can I put myself in the same position? Right? How can I also be used by God to affect the world? How can I be used to spread this gospel? And I boiled it down to basically these three things that we saw Philip do. Man, the first thing that we really want to make sure we're doing as we are trying to rely on God is to listen to him. 
Like I mentioned, Philip didn't start with the angel of the Lord telling him to go to a road. He started being faithful in Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes tells us that there are hidden things of this world, but they belong to God. And the revealed things belong to us. Therefore, we, as followers of God, should focus our attention on the revealed things. We should excel at the revealed things and leave the hidden things to him. Meaning, if I know something to be true, if I know that I currently have a responsibility, if the Bible has told me that prayer is important, then right now I should focus on praying. If the Bible has told me that knowing Scripture is important, then I'm going to focus on knowing Scripture. If God has put me in a house with a roommate that I just don't really get along with, because he eats my cereal, or she eats your Greek yogurt, right? Whatever it is. You just don't, mm, you just don't quite get it. You met on Craigslist and it seemed like a good idea, right? But it's not. We are in those situations and we can see the revealed things. We can see and know that God has put things in our life that we can excel at. So I'm going to focus on my prayer. I'm going to focus on the things. That's what it means to listen to God, to merely look at my life and see what's already here, what's already in place. What's that growth group that's been offered that I could join? What, what about that service team that I could do? What about those people that greet people at the door? Maybe I could do that, right? It's this idea of being willing to listen to God and excel at the revealed things because he's speaking to us constantly. He has spoken to us in his word. But are you willing to listen to that? Beyond that, are you willing to go where he leads you? Right now, a lot of times we take this and people take this passion and say, see, you need to go out to Papua New Guinea. You need to go out to Asia or you need to go to Antarctica. Penguins need Jesus too, right? And they've got all these things that they push on you. I mean, sometimes those things are great, right? Sometimes God will lead you to those unreached nations. That's why grace sends out mission families and trips everywhere, As a college student, you have multiple opportunities to go to the Trade Winds mission trip or go to the Asia, East Asia mission trip or the Greece mission trip. There's all these different things where you can go for a few weeks or a few months or a year, right? There are all these places that God could be leading you to. But what we need to realize is that these wild countries of, you know, not jungle and ah, like that's not, that's not the only place that God can lead us. God can also lead you to be an accountant in Houston or an engineer in Dallas or a organic banana flavored coffee barista in Austin, right? Like who grows mushrooms on his roof, right? Like maybe that's it. Maybe that's where God's leading you. He doesn't have to necessarily lead you to some strange foreign land. Instead, God, what you can count on is that God's going to lead you somewhere where you can be effective. And a lot of times to make you effective, God's going to lead you somewhere uncomfortable, right? That's why a lot of times people say, oh, this mission trip was so great. Why? Because they were so far outside their comfort zone. Because they go to some little village in Africa where people don't have anything and they're forced to rely on God. They're like, oh my gosh, only God will get me through this, right? That's why their experiences are so great. But guess what? That can happen anywhere, My wife and I, we have tried and failed to move to Dallas five times. Five in two and a half years. That's a really bad ratio. We try over and over again. We have these plans. We're like, okay, we're going to move after this point or after you finish this piece of school or after you do this thing. right? Because I 
am trying to, I'm currently pursuing my degree from Dallas Theological Seminary, which is in Dallas. It'd be nice to be there, right? My wife is a nurse. She can work literally anywhere. Also, I grew up in College Station. So I'm that guy that's still here, right? And I know that. I'm not oblivious to the fact that I'm that guy from our graduating class. Gosh, right? I'm that guy. And I know that. And so because of that, when we're here in College Station over and over again, we're like, oh my gosh, let's just go. Let's just, let's just any, let's go anywhere. Snook. Let's go to Snook. Like we're just, we'll go literally anywhere. But over and over again, God says, no, nah, look at College Station. Look at College Station. Look at this. Look at this. And every time we're like, no, no, I don't want to. Look, 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 Jacob, 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 look, look, Jacob. I said, okay, fine, right? And at this point, at this point, we're we're here and we're experiencing life and we're able to be in these opportunities that we never would have thought possible. The fact that I'm standing here right now in front of you, sharing this passage of Acts with you blows my mind. This is crazy for me, at least personally. I never, never would have expected that God would have me in this position right now, doing what I'm doing, And it was only possible because I was willing to be led to where he wanted me to go, even though it was uncomfortable. And not uncomfortable in the sense that I was this weird place in the jungle, but weird and uncomfortable in the sense that from the outward side, from the outside looking in, it looks really comfortable. It looks like I gave up. So maybe God's calling you to just move to Houston and be an accountant. Or maybe you've been called to go back home and serve in that church or run that business. Don't think that God's only going to lead you to the other side of the world. God can lead us anywhere. It's just a matter of us being willing to go. And as we are listening and going where God leads, we need to be looking for opportunities, right? Because it's pointless to go somewhere unless we're keeping our eyes open, right? When Philip went and saw the Ethiopian, it would have been pretty useless if he went up to the Ethiopian and said, well, I don't understand this passage in Isaiah. And Philip said, yeah, weird, huh? <laughs> How about that Aggie game, huh? We can't believe we won, right? Like, that'd be terrible, right? If, if Philip just completely missed that conversation. Instead, he was looking for the opportunity. As soon as it popped up, he, boom, seized it. He says, oh, I'm going to gospel you now, son. Look out. And he did it. He gospeled him from that Isaiah 53. So when we're moving through our lives, we need to have our eyes open. So maybe that weird troubled lab partner that we have, that's always kind of weird and smells like fish or something, right? You don't know? Go get coffee with them. Become actual friends. Maybe that group that you're a part of, right? That Bible study group where you're like, I don't really know if I fit in here. I don't know if I really like it. Maybe you just need to look for the opportunities to contribute to make that study better. Maybe you're not in any sort of small group. Maybe you realize, oh, I have these really good friends. Maybe we could be accountability partners. Or maybe we could have a small get-together, a Bible study. Maybe you realize that there's these opportunities around you so that as we listen and are being led, that we would have our eyes open. We're looking for these opportunities. Not that we're coming up with our own plans and things, right? Like Philip didn't go in and have this big gospel presentation prepared. Instead, he simply replied, to the verse that the Ethiopian asked him about. So maybe when we're going to work and we hear that 
weird question about, well, I just don't understand how God could allow hurricanes, or I don't know what the big deal is with all this gay marriage stuff, and I don't really understand how God, you know, I don't think we should really force morality on people. How prepared are you to answer those questions? How ready are you to share the gospel based on Isaiah 53? Probably not very, right? That's tough. Sometimes the opportunities that God's going to give us are hard. Generally, they are. But as long as we're listening, as long as we're being led, what we're going to realize is that God has prepared us in ways that we maybe never even expected. And let me tell you right now, one of the ways that God has revealed to us, one of the ways that we can best be prepared for these situations of evangelism, pretty simple, learn the gospel. Know the gospel backwards and forwards. Be prepared to very effectively share it. So maybe you learn the ABCs of salvation. That's okay. Maybe you learn the Romans road. Maybe you learn something, the bridge illustration. You learn some way to share the gospel, to somehow communicate with a person that we all sinned, but that Christ died for those sins. And that if we put our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we can have eternal life with God forever. Do you know that? For some of us, do you believe that? Right? I don't assume that all of us have actually bought into that story, that all of us have actually bought into this presentation, this gospel. So for you, before you ever even try to listen to God or go where God's leading you or look for God moving, before any of those things, you need to focus on the gospel. Do you believe that? Was there actually a moment where you personally put your faith in it, or is it just something that's kind of been bounced around around you? Or is it just something that your parents believed? Have you accepted this gospel for yourself? And if so, maybe in your quest to learn the gospel, what I would encourage you to do is think about your testimony. Be able to share with someone in three minutes what God has done in your life, what he's done and what he's currently doing. That's, a tes- that's all testimony is, a testimony to what God has done in your life. Can you share that? Because I promise you, that's way more effective than just walking up to someone and reading to them off a script. Well, A, B, C, except you're a sinner. Right? That's not nearly as effective as telling them, man, I was in this place, and God moved, and I had this experience, and now I'm here. That's so effective. And all of us, if we are Christians, have one. So learn it. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to sing a few more songs. And as we sing and worship, what I would encourage you to do is think about which of these are you going to focus on? Which of these L's, right? Four L's. You're welcome for easiness, right? Four L's. Listen, lead, look, learn. Which one are you going to focus on this week? Because as we hear the story of Philip, we don't want to just hear it and be like, oh, that's cool, and throw it away, right? Instead, this needs to sink in. Change it. So this week, make a pact to seek to better yourself at one of these. Right? Tell your roommate. Text them right now and be like, hey, I'm going to really try to listen to God. And maybe they don't know what that means, but it doesn't matter. They can keep you accountable. But pick one. As we sing, think about it. So let's pray right now. God, we thank you so much for the life of Philip. God, we thank you so much for the life of Luke and the ways that you have put them before us as examples. God, we pray that this time of worship would steady our hearts and our minds to where we would be prepared to think 
about your truth, that, God, we wouldn't think about the sermon, but instead that we would be focusing on how you're moving and convicting our hearts right now. So God, reveal to us what area of our life we can focus on this week. God, guide this worship. If you would, let's pray one more time. God, we thank you for this time of worship. God, we thank you for these songs. That God, you've given us the gift of music. Lord, we pray that we would take this knowledge, God, that we would take this truth that you've laid upon our hearts, that we would be prepared to go out this week and use it. So Lord, guide our steps. Lord, empower us to listen, to be led, and to look. And God, through all of that, Lord, help us keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. All right, have a good night and a good week.